got a great song to play next. Hello. Have you ever snubbed a lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Yeah. We're on there. Can I swear? Welcome to Crunch and Roll. My name is John Fox, known to some as Foxy, done breakfast shows across the UK, more recently some work for the BBC. Now, hands up who's listening who works or has worked in radio. Hands up. That's it. Okay. Now, keep your hand up if you started your career on Radio 1. Would seem just Cam Kelly then. Now, there is an irony to this, as it turns out, it's not even really where Cam wanted to work. And uh, you'll find out where he actually wanted to be and if he achieved it in the course of my chat with him. He also tells us which AAA list star made his co-host cry, who he used to have to buy a four pack of cider for during their show and something about a camel. As you'd expect, the strong language and some adult contents. So let's crunch and roll. Cam, how are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, not bad at all. And yourself? Yeah, good. You look really happy. I am. I'm glad you said that. I thought you were going to say you look really tired. I'm well aware of the fact that I look a little bit worse for wear, but um, no, generally happy. Yeah, really happy. So um, uh, this is kind of going backwards. I appreciate that. And we will go to the start of your career in a second. But you're you're currently doing shows for BFBS, the the amazing BFBS. And you're sat in the Falklands right now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I started... Um, when I took the job, it was uh, last year and it was Brunei. They sent me out to Brunei and I was supposed to be there for six months. And then they decided that my my second, it's not a posting. I've been told this a million times. It's not a posting. It's a detachment. And they said that my second one would be the Falklands at some point. And then they realized that if I did my full six months in Brunei, they'd send me down for a full on six month Falklands winter, which they reckon if you've never been to the Falklands before is probably not actually that good for your mental health. So they <laughs> cut it, um, my my time short in Brunei, where I was getting 35 degrees every day. And then all the people who were getting ready to welcome me in the Falklands were emailing me going, oh, you're going to love it over here, mate. It's summer. It's 19 degrees. I'm thinking to myself, that's a winter's day. <laughs> You do look. You look really tanned and well. So life is treating. Yeah, life's treating you good. I'll take that. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> well, listen. Thank you very much for being on Crunch and Roll. Let's let's go right back to the start. I know very little about you personally. Obviously, I know how good you are on air. But where where were you born? Are you from London? Yeah, born London. Um, I was born in the same um, hospital that I started doing hospital radio in. No, that's yeah. amazing. Born in. UCH and started doing UCH radio yeah, when I was about 15. UCH is still across the road from the Euston Tower, which is no longer Capital Radio. It's now the HMRC, which is a kick in the guts. But it used to be Capital. And I had this, this fantasy every time I was on air at UCH that Richard Park had a line because they were so close. Richard Park could listen to hospital radio DJs and then handpick them from UCH radio. He didn't. <laughs> so, so I'm guessing your dream of being a, a pro presenter was quite early on then? Yeah, from about 12, I think, maybe 11 or 12. It was one of those things where, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, I can never really remember what my parents were doing if they were around, but I'd just go in and have me cassette and record and play and pause ready for the chart show, which was just on Radio 1 just by default. And then I remember one Sunday just tuning around the dial and found one of my favourite songs, left it on. And to this day, for the sake of the story, I wish I remember which DJ it was, but I can't. But it was a DJ on Capitol talking up a a ramp to a jingle, and it was all about London, and he sounded cool, and the jingle was cool, and it was one of my favourite songs. I was like, oh, my God, I live here. And, And that was it. That was just, it was born. It was an absolute obsession began. Then I'd start with those tapes that I'd start recording songs um, off Radio 1 on a Sunday afternoon. I'd, rec- I'd release pause every time Capital played a jingle. So I just had cassettes and cassettes of their jingles rather than my favourite songs. It's so strange how uh, similar we all are. Um, we're, we're, we're a strange, mm. strange breed, aren't we? Really are, yeah. Do you find yourself hanging out with many radio people? I don't, because I think they're weird. 
<laughs> do, do you know, at the time of recording, I'm about to spend the Friday night with a room full of them. So yeah, I'll. I'll ah, but uh, don't you find don't you find the problem with that is like it, I, I've I've come up with the collective term for a bunch of radio presenters, by the way, because um, from back in the smashy and nicey days, and a lot of presenters still do it now. They pronounce their T's as D's. Um, I think that the, a collective term for a group of radio presenters is a lodder. There's a lot of presenters, a lot of presenters in one. And don't you find if you are out with a lot of presenters, everyone's on. It's exhausting. Yeah. Everyone's got to get the last word. I'm funny. I do breakfast. I should really, I should really close this conversation. <laughs> We're just constantly searching for that power out. Yeah, I find it. I find it exhausting. I really do find it exhausting. But it was it was Robin Banks who who kicked off series one of Crunch and Roll, who's who's a mate of mine and and a legend in my eyes, you know, for for what he's achieved. And he, he just says that we're all mad as shit. I mean, I I, I can't disagree with that. I, do you know what I really like about Robin? I, when I was on Capital in London, he was on Kiss, and I think he was doing Breakfast. He, as a competitor in a station, got in touch with me because he said he'd heard me a couple of times on his way into work. And we ended up meeting for coffee. He said he'd just like to go out for coffee and catch up and was really complimentary. And I just found that a real rarity within radio presenters who tend not to like to appreciate other people. They're, what I find, again, I'm not, a lot of my good friends are radio presenters and that's fine. Um, but I do find that a lot of time when they compliment someone, They'll go, oh, yeah, you know, that, yeah, that Robin Banks, yeah, he is good, but, and there's always a but at the end of it. <laughs> and then, you know, because it's something that it's not quite their standard, something that they do. But so that's why I found Robin really refreshing. And it was lovely at a time when you're stuck doing early breakfast on Capital. And it's just really nice to have someone from a competing station get in touch and let you know that they think what you're doing is really good so that was yeah. i always was very grateful to robin for that absolutely he's a top guy now um, he is. quite unique cam because you are the first guest to have started your career at radio one in 1994 yeah 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 promo team those uh those denim shorts were cut high my friend Don't you worry about that. <laughs> did you look as good oh, as no. you do now cam Oh, mate, don't even worry about it. Boy band on the road, no, it wasn't. Um, but, uh, do you know, I had the best time. I, I was I failed school, failed college, but I was allowed into college because of the hospital radio that I did, because part of it was media studies course. So they said, look, because your extracurricular activities will let you in. And part of it was radio. And I don't know if you've heard of Linda Gage. Um, she passed away a few years ago now, but she was my tutor. She was great. Canadian woman, brilliant in the industry, worked at LBC, but also did this tutoring. And she suggested that we put together a demo and she said, I'm going to enter you for this radio academy where certain students from certain courses, only a handful from up and down the country were chosen to go and be on the academy radio station at the big conference in Birmingham, which meant that it would just go out in the sort of like communal hall to all the delegates at break time. So there was a break time show, morning break, lunchtime show, afternoon show for the afternoon break and anyway on one of those shows that i did you'd, you're there for three days so you do the morning show then you do the afternoon so to give the other presenters a show. and one of the people that i spoke to was paul robinson and i had to interview him um on that and he just gave me his card and he said look give me a shout and i'll show you around radio one and then and i did that and he showed and he introduced me to a couple of the people who ran promo and stuff like that and i always kept in touch with them and then i got in touch with them a few years later or a year or two later and um said is there anything and they said there was this promo work so um so i went and started doing that yeah well, well talk talk to me about the roadster because you you were the you were the driver of this um i mean this was a beast of a machine wasn't it this transit yeah and i have looked it up online you can google it um, and i think you'll only find one or two pictures of it um but it was like a metallic purple custom built transit van with the big silver chrome pipes down the side and all that and the back door was a stage that came down hydraulic stage that came down there was a fully functional broadcast studio on board and the idea would be that jocks would come up to events all over the country and they'd just do it off-air stuff so um little competitions on stage for a radio one t-shirts with the crowds that were around at air shows and festivals and various things but I had to drive it to each location. I'd do that every week. Um, even back then, I think it was valued at about 
100 grand, if not more, I can't remember exactly. Um, and I drive it. And it was only when I'd finished doing promo work and I landed the full-time job as a messenger there that we they went through... No one was legally insured on it unless they were 25 and I was 20. So I'd been driving it literally from London to Manchester to Fareham to Devon to all over the country, hundreds of miles every weekend, completely, 100% illegally. <laughs> all right. So, uh, I mean, you must have used that opportunity at Radio 1 to, because obviously you've got a love for presenting. Did you use that opportunity to be at Radio 1 to try and make the demos and, and, and practice? Yeah, I think during the time that I was doing promos, I was also putting myself forward to answer phones. So I'd go in in the evening. Um, I think I'd answer phones for like Mark and Lard, even though they were in Manchester, they were running a competition throughout a month of May and um, that it was a London number. So it would all come through. So then I'd have to get the list of people who had qualified and then ring Manchester studio. And, and then one of the people, Lynn Parsons was doing overnights and she was one of my heroes from Capital anyway. And she was so kind to me and she set up studio time for me and so I could get in there and make demos and, you know, mess around and just talk up 30 second ramps into a 1FM jingle and all this kind of stuff. And um, she was really, really kind and really helpful. And even when there weren't promotions and there weren't competitions going on, which meant me going in to answer phones, she would make sure that I could get in and use a studio to record stuff. And that was all before I got the job as messenger which put me in the building five days a week for as long as needed to be there and and which was just brilliant but there are so many lovely people and i've been blessed really to have met my dream lineup from capital that made me want to get into it in the first place and not one of them has been anything but lovely they say don't meet your heroes don't they but i think all of them have been amazing and the likes of clive warren lynn parsons pat sharp they've all been really helpful within my career and helped me to get to the next level at certain different times. And you get to work with my heroes, Mark and Lard. They were the people that inspired me to get into radio as well. Were they? Yeah. They were awesome, weren't they? Um, but just, um, I, I've just got such, I've got such vivid memories of, I'm from Holland, my mum and dad used to live in Ipswich. They used to take me to go and see the grandparents in Ipswich and my dad, I just remember my dad and I sat in his car and my dad having to pull the car over because he was laughing that much. And that yeah. made me happy, but also I related to what they were doing and I just thought that they, they were the best on, at the time, you know, I thought they were incredible. Yeah. And I thought, I mean, I thought their afternoon show was good, was really good, but I think their funniest and where they could get away with more was obviously on Lates. Yeah. That, was a, that, was a, that was a great show, that Late Show, wasn't it? And you've got to bear in mind, at the time that I was doing all that and working for Radio 1, who I'm eternally grateful to for every opportunity that they gave me, um, I was still going home and listening to Capital. Capital was my, that was my everything Capital. But I was great. But working at Radio 1, answering the phones for Mark and Lard meant that Mark and Lard were on. And I remember just thinking, well, this is completely different, but this is brilliant. This is genius. So the lineup was Steve Wright at breakfast. And then Chris Evans took over. That was an amazing time. Um, I remember the first, he'd done his first show and he was coming up from Egton One, which was the, the self-op studio that he'd chosen to do his shows from. And I was in the lift and he got in on the first floor and I was there with me trolley. And I remember being quite nervous and just going to him, um, hey, did you enjoy that? And he just looked at me like I was absolute dirt. <laughs> and he got out and then, um, and then I thought, oh, I've really upset him. I don't know what I've done. Maybe I shouldn't talk to the talent. And within about a month, he was one of the loveliest blokes and very, you know, and he came to my leave and do was, and then, you know, I think we spoke again. We've seen each other out in London a few years ago and just caught up, through, you know, just chatted, not about anything in particular, but he ended up being lovely. I remember Nicky Campbell was talking to someone once and um, he made a joke and the guy started laughing and I thought it was funny. So I started laughing too. And I looked up and Nicky Campbell was just giving me this death stare, death stare, like, mate you're not involved in this and it was only first days there and I was absolutely devastated um, but again after that he was he was lovely really really kind and helpful and funny and lovely and we saw each other at, at Michelle Dignan's wedding a few years ago and um, we, we sat next to each other and, and I told him that I said you were an ab you've absolute thing to me when um, when I first started but then we ended up getting on really well but Everyone there was was great, and Simon Mayo. There was some. There was so much talent in that building at the time. 
every, everyone there was really helpful. There was a guy called Graham White. They called his name was Chalky. He was in the pit, the production pit, and he was a really good friend. He was really helpful. Helped me put together my demo tape, which you know was actually with the with one of Radio One's producers putting it together. It was a kick-ass demo tape, to be fair. <laughs> it re- no, it was. It really was. In which I even referred to myself as a hot sex warrior and got a job out of it. Um, <laughs> And to this day, I've got boxes and boxes of CDs. Tenor, if you want one. <laughs> Do you know, I've got, and I don't know where, because I've moved, I figured out that I'd moved 21 times within my first 20 years of radio. Um, so I've left CDs all over the place. I remember it was a copy of Oasis, definitely maybe, but it was a promo experimental copy. They hadn't named the album yet. And there were two tracks on the back which hadn't been decided yet. So number four on the back of this cardboard sleeve was yet to be allocated a song. And number nine was yet to be allocated a song. And I had about four copies of them. And I don't know. I've got no idea where they are. And I know for a fact that they would be worth and and they were mint because I wasn't an Oasis fan. So they never actually came out to be played. I've got no idea where they are. Well, there's uh, stuff testing, 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 testing. testing. The dealer does a lot of work. Cold in well, I'm all for being open-minded, but I'm not all for discussing this live on air. Thank you. We are profoundly uh, sorry. Oh, yeah. All right, so in 96 then, Cam, so you get your, your first professional on-air gig. So how did, how, did, how did you go from working at Radio 1 Promotions to, to get into to, to your first professional gig? So it was doing pro- promotions was one thing. Then getting the messengers job put me in the building every day. So messengers just delivering everything that needs delivering and um, um, running errands for anyone. And it's one of those things that you'd get in at nine o'clock in the morning. But I always knew, and I'm sure at this stage they won't mind me saying, but Joe Wiley and Steve Lamack were doing the evening session and I'd always wait around. They'd start at seven and I'd always wait until they were on air. I could go home at five, but I'd always wait until they were on, give it about 20 minutes until they're in the float and then go into the studio and say, do you need anything? Is there anything I can get you? And they'd always say, yeah, can you get us four ciders? So I'd go over to the off license um, (laughs) over on Great Titchfield Street, get them a four pack of cider and take it back to them and then say, is there anything else you need? And they'd say, no, we're fine, thanks. And then I'd go. But while I was there, I thought, because it was a three month rolling contract, the messengers won. And I thought, well, if I only get three months, I don't want to waste it, but I don't want to be pushy. But in my own time, I'd use the studios to try and do demos. And then I started talking to the main producer at the time, Eddie Temple Morris, who's a legend, even a legend today, legend then. Mm. And um, he said, and I was talking to him and he went, well, look, just put together a little demo of voiceovers and we'll see whether we can use you. And he really liked it. And I ended up off the back of that. I ended up becoming the voice of Radio 1 for the summer of 95. Um, Wow which was great. I was being, I was the messenger. I was getting every ticket to every gig that you'd ever want. Every CD, every piece of merchandise, every limited edition top, every, whatever it was, the record companies would give you. They wanted to keep you on side. So you'd actually hand their CD to certain producers rather than just put it in their pigeonhole. So they always kept you on side. So as well as all that, plus getting a relatively good wage for being in a radio station all day delivering mail, I was getting even back then £50 a script. And I was sometimes doing two or three scripts a day because I was convenient. I was just there. So they didn't have to call a voiceover, see if they were free to come in. They could just get me in and I'd record the voiceovers there and then. So, yeah, I was doing pretty well for yeah 20 21 year old living at home with his mum every all i ever saved me money for was cds anyway so yeah and then i was getting all this voiceover work which really helped with demos and then it was simon willis who was a producer there god rest his soul he had recently come from plymouth sound where he was the program controller and i got on really well with him and he rang Plymouth Sound, uh, Graham, the managing director there at the time, and said, I need you to keep an eye out for Cam's demo tape. I'm going to get him to send it to you today. Sent it to him, went for a meeting at Plymouth Sound, and then they gave me plenty of cover. I think I did cover for about a month, and then they offered me breakfast there, which was which was great. So um, that was that was how that happened, that move into professional presenting. Do you know, I, I asked a lot of the guests um, about their first gig. I ask them the same question. Yeah. Um, were you any good? No. No, 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 no. <laughs> but then I can say that about this morning's show as well. Um, <laughs> but, 
<laughs> and I think that I think that's fair. But I, the the this is part of the reason why I did move on. The people there were lovely, but I was literally given a breakfast show and then told, "Well, there you go. That's that's you. You carry on." carry on doing and I was there for like three four months I hadn't been given one coaching session no one sat me down and said you need to do this or and I wasn't arrogant enough to believe that I was brilliant and I just thought well I think I need to learn and I'm not learning and then Nick Martin was at Kicks 96 an independent up in Coventry and he got in touch with me and offered me mid-mornings there on and and I accepted it on the proviso that he would give me regular coaching which he did yeah so I no, I wasn't good. No, far from it. I thought I, no, no. Get me wrong. I thought I was fantastic. I thought I was brilliant. <laughs> I think we, we all we all go through those periods where we think, oh my god, uh, yeah, I, I'm brilliant. And then you have a, you listen yeah. to yourself and you're like, oh no, I'm not. No, 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 I'm not. No. Yeah, no, I know. There's, there's some work needs doing here. So I I, I, I wasn't aware that you came to Kicks '96 because of course you know we're based in, in in the Midlands, so Coventry and Warwickshire. Yeah. Um. So what gig did you get there? Mid mornings. So I went, I went from Plymouth Sound, which was a market leader. So it was, just, yeah, essentially, without being too condescending, it was, it was Devon and Cornwall's Mercia FM. Um, so I went from breakfast on that to mids on a station that had the same listenership as the breakfast show at Plymouth Sound. The entire station had, and I went to mid-mornings from breakfast. But I do think it was invaluable in that he really did. He, he taught me loads of just simple stuff simple stuff but just slow down a little bit make things a little bit more clear i see the point you were trying to make there but it didn't land and here's why it didn't and this is why blah 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 blah. and it was a little bit of a gamble but i think it, it paid off i think it paid off in dividends actually what was it like moving from london to, to living did, did you live in coventry uh yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, london i moved to plymouth first and then i moved to coventry and what i didn't realize was that i was leaving London, which was just, which I'd obviously grown up in, and um, it's just steeped in history. It's all around whether you take it in or not. And I realised, I think, after my first two months in Plymouth, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was. There was something missing, and I couldn't figure out. And the same within Coventry. And then when I moved to Bristol from Coventry, I just felt at home and I felt comfortable. And when, looking back on it, what I realised was I left London to go to the two worst-hit cities of World War II. Yeah. So anything that was there that was commercial was basically put up in the 50s, the late 40s, 50s, just concrete blocks with the city centre were shops, all very square, all very grey. And the same, that was Plymouth and the same in Coventry. And then I moved to Bristol where there was all this history all around me. And it's amazing you don't even realise that you're taking it in, but you are and it's there. Do you know, I'm a big fan of Bristol. It's one of my favourite cities in the UK. I think it's, uh, you know, and you, and you get to, yeah. to work there and, and live there. So, I mean, you were there for, you know, five years of your time and you go to an incredible brand. You go to Galaxy 101. How was that? Yeah, just anarchic, but brilliant. Absolutely. I, I think possibly the best. Generally, I've loved every station that I've been at, all the people that I've worked with but Galaxy was just, it was a different level. At that stage, there were two stations that I wanted to work for. There was Capital, and then when I was in the industry, I'd heard of this Galaxy 101, which was a monster. Um, and I got to go to that, and it was just incredible. And it was set in Bristol. And it was just over the road from Cardiff, which is another one of my favourite cities. Bristol remains my favourite city in the world. That's just a, that's, that's a given. I fell in love with Bristol. And I think even the first time my mum came down to visit me, she went, oh, my God. She goes, this is your home, isn't it? This is where you're meant to be. And I was like, I think so, mum. Yeah. And this is where... So you and Sally become become a team and of course you go on to do other things together you become quite a good well a very good team together was it was it a marriage of presenters or did you pick Sally or did she pick you how did that all work I owe her my entire career really um I, uh, yeah, things were going off at kicks there was change of management things were just getting messy so Nick Martin knew Steve Parkinson at Galaxy who was the managing director and Nick said to me look why don't you just drop him a demo and a letter and and Steve got back to me pretty quick and said, look, there's nothing going on here at all. Uh, thanks for your interest. If you're ever in the area, pop in for a coffee. It'd be nice to catch up. So I did that thing where I'd never been to Bristol before in my life. And um, and I rang, I think, rather than wrote. I rang 
And I said, I don't really have time to write. I'm seeing some friends in Bristol next Tuesday. Is that convenient to pop in for a coffee? And he went, yeah, absolutely. So what I said, well, I'll come down after my show and then I'll come and see you. Then I'll go off and have coffee with them. It, obviously, like I say, didn't never been to Bristol. Didn't have any mates there. Didn't have any mates. <laughs> um, and then... Um, so I went down on that Tuesday and I went into the office in the, and I sat down with him and Simon Dennis, who was the program controller. And they said, if you just give us five minutes, Sally will be in in a minute. And I was like, okay. And Sally, who's, what, what's that now? And they went, well, Sally currently does breakfast. So you're going to do a demo with her. And I was like, well, what for? And they went breakfast. They said, we're toying with, we're thinking about you for breakfast. And I was like, what? But there was nothing going. They, they, you didn't even have weekends. I would have come down, worked in a bar and done weekend overnights. There was nothing going. I came in for a coffee just to make that initial contact. And I met Sally. Me and her instantly just got on. And and we went for a cigarette. That was one of the first things that we you know, we had in common. Went for a cigarette. We just started laughing. And because part of the thing was, I said, I hate doing demos and stuff and she was like I know I can't stand it myself blah 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 anyway we went back up and we started doing it she was like this is some of the stuff we did on breakfast this morning and she gave me and do you know what it was and it was a story about it was in a magazine called Bazaar I think was the magazine and it was a story about a guy with a fetish of getting dressed up in latex and going into lakes and pretending to be a fish and that was his turn on <laughs> and and I remember I know and Sally gave me this thing and I went did you do this on the air this morning she went I kind of mentioned it and it ended up and it's not even that funny and it ended up I was just like but but what if someone if someone's fishing and then I just put my finger in the mouth like he was getting a fish hook in his mouth and then tried to talk and we just caught each other's eye and just started like and that was it and crashed the vocal of Ultranate because I couldn't find the mic fader because it was a new studio <laughs> we were both pissing each other couldn't breathe crying not even sure what we were laughing at and then eventually so laughing all over Ultranate it eventually pulled the faded down do you know and I remember leaving thinking to myself I fucked that up I fucked up my opportunity to be at Galaxy but I think I've made a friend for life because I someone who I laugh with like that that's someone who's going to stay with me anyway Steve and Simon said look we'll let you know in a couple of weeks and I hadn't heard anything so I thought oh fuck it what have I got to lose so I rang them and I said look I just wanted to ring just to just to get it from your mouth rather than speculating and they went oh you know we're offering it to you um that's we want you to do breakfast I was like what <laughs> they were like yeah we are Sally and um she said she'd love you to do the breakfast show with her so it was down to Sally. Sally tried out with a few different guys and she could have chosen any one of them. And she chose me. I don't know what would have happened if she didn't. And I don't know whether I would still be in Coventry and I don't know whether I'd still be in radio. I, I, gen I genuinely don't know whether I would have had the career that I'd have had if she hadn't said, yeah, let's take a chance on him then. And do you know what? I constantly teach my two young girls not to lie. But Cam, there's a perfect example of why perhaps a little white lie now and then does you all right? I mean, you, you had no friends in Bristol. Oh, yeah. You know, so yeah. well done on that. I mean, great thinking. Yeah, I don't know. People, I mean, my dad always says to me the reason, he goes, you, you've, in this industry, you've got to, the way he, put, he said, you've got to have elbows. You've got to, he said, because you're, because I tend to stand there waiting for people to start. And he said, you've got to be able to elbow your way in. And, and I don't know what it is. I don't know whether that's the kind of thing that I would have done nowadays. But it certainly at the time, maybe it was the hunger, maybe it was the ambition. I just thought, I, there is no way that I'm not getting in a room with the managing director of Galaxy 101 if there's a chance. It doesn't have to transpire in anything now, but if Weekend Overnights comes up in the future and he remembers me and we happen to have got on quite well, maybe he'll give me a call or maybe I'll just keep in regular contact with him. But he's more likely to take my calls if he's met me. So it was just about really making that contact and make, you know, meeting that person. And um, again, yeah, you're right. It is a white lie. And, and I don't know whether that is something that I would have the nous to, to do now. <laughs> I really don't. Do you know, I've got a question for you. So I mean, I, I, I've kept it no secret that I've always been a big fan of the brand Galaxy. It was it was an amazing brand. You know, the music for me was bang on. All the presenters, you know, yeah. we've we've had Hursty on already. We've had Lucio, people who've spent time at Galaxy yeah. and absolutely loved it. But for you being at Galaxy 101, what was it like presenting to England and to Wales? It was, do you know, somehow it worked. South Wales and the West, it somehow it worked. We tried, uh, myself and Sal were very conscious of the fact that the station was based in Bristol and we didn't want the show to be too Bristol-centric. So 
we tried to call back as many Welsh texters or callers or put as many Welsh callers on as we could. Every time we did some kind of gig, we our priority would be, can we do it in Cardiff or Newport? Can we get over there? We, and so we would do as many gigs as we could. Like if, if it was Cam and Sally's third birthday or whatever, if we'd get record companies would give us, well, not a A-list, but Sophie Ellis-Bexter's and Shola Ammers and blah, 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 blah. And you do a showcase with them, but we'd always do it over in Cardiff or if we could in Newport, any part of the TSA over there, we wanted to make sure that every there was no secret that we were based in Bristol. It would be stupid to try and pretend that we weren't. It's just, um, you know, having spoken to Hursty and, and known Hursty for many years and when she was on <laughs> Galaxy in Yorkshire, obviously... I'm from Yorkshire, so I can say it. Bloody stubborn people. Do you know what I mean? If you're from Yorkshire, yeah. it's bloody Yorkshire. Whereas, you know, it's quite a unique challenge that on, on Galaxy 101 to, to be England and Wales, especially with the rugby, with the football. Do you know? So I just thought it'd be, you know, I'd ask, you know, was it a challenge? But obviously, you, you know, you cracked it. I hope so. So much so that, you know, later on, the brand Cam and Sally still resonated really well in Wales, which is why we went back to do Red Dragon Breakfast because the brand still carried some weight. And I remember we did the Bristol Balloon Fiesta um, and there wasn't a massive headline. I think Jocelyn Brown was the headliner. And there were a few other like dance and R&B acts that were around at the time. After that, GWR got it back. I think we had it for a year or two, Galaxy. That was the only year, I think, because it, it also involved so many people coming over from Wales and ordinarily the Bristol Balloon Fiesta doesn't. It was the only year they had to shut the Bristol Suspension Bridge. They were worried because there were so many people they thought it was going to collapse wow. um, going over. And I remember getting on stage. I remember going to London and Chris Brooks love him saying to me about the big outdoor party in the parks that Capital were doing. You go, you know, unless you've been in front of 80,000 people, you don't really know what it's like. And I'm not one of them to go, well, actually, <laughs> but that Bristol balloon fiesta, there was over 100,000 people there. And that's because of the power of Galaxy. I think it's quite ironic that obviously when you moved to Plymouth and then you, when you moved to Coventry, that you felt there was something missing and it was history. And ironically, you and Sally nearly smashed up the bridge, which gives so much history to Bristol. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I wouldn't say it was me and Sally. I'd say it was the brand, the Galaxy brand, for sure. Um, so, so GW Network. So this is when I I must have just started at 2.10 in 2005. So you doing core evening. So was that, were you on your own or did Sally come with you? No, that was me and Sally. We did core control. Right. From 2000, I think you may have missed me. You may have got Kevin. You would have got Sally and I Kevin did. on music control. I did get Kevin. Um, Sorry, Cam. Because... Yeah, that's all right. Because I left in, I was tempted away in 2005. And that was hard to do, leaving Bristol and leaving my, my radio wife, leaving Sally. But it was an opportunity to go to my hometown and literally every day say 95.8 capital FM. And so I couldn't turn that down. Core control was, was brilliant. We wouldn't have left. It was, it was look, it, and I think me and Sally both, the, the, the versions of the story pretty much similar and pretty identical in that the vague ideas there whether we get the details exactly right or not i don't know gwr ever since cam and sally had been on galaxy gwr came uh, at least once every six months with an offer to go over to gwr bristol and we didn't and we didn't and we didn't and then this core control and it was network show 38 stations you know massive opportunities here and again nick me and sal I had so much love for Galaxy 101 that we just, nothing is going to drag us away from Galaxy 101. And I can't remember exactly how it happened, but we ended up going to Core Control and it transpired. We found out while we were at Core Control, months later, GWR were in the process of buying Galaxy and they were the ones who made sure that we would leave Galaxy to go to them. And it was just... Yeah, when you look back, it was a little bit, a little bit underhanded, without naming any names involved in the process. But we had, we had the most incredible experience at Core Control. That was a huge show, mm. and we got to meet. I got to meet some of the biggest stars in the world. I, I, you know, it was a lot. It was, it was a lot of work. They were, they were fifteen-hour days every day. But, but it was. I think we put out a decent product. I think it was relatively polished. Do you know, it's interesting because obviously we've we've chatted to Graham Torrington and, you know, iconic late night radio presenter. 
nobody can yeah. argue that. But he talked about the fact that, you know, GWR kind of, well, well they insisted that everybody took GT's Late Show and, and some stations yeah. were resistant. Did you, did, you, did you face any of that when you were doing, you know, the, the evening show network? Nope. Everybody wanted Camus Sally. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> We're having a party. Oh, yeah. The thing about core control was we had to do sometimes three or four interviews a day, plus I'd have to edit down an interview for that night. Every record company wanted everyone on core control, because I think outside of Radio 1, it was the second biggest show for that demographic. What I found was a lot of the newer artists coming through who their first single had maybe got into the top 20, and they'd come in with this swagger of arrogance, and you'd just think to yourself, what are you doing? And then they'd never do anything after that. It was the lovely ones who went on. And, and I think the people who have earned the right to be dicks weren't, apart from one. I didn't think she was a very nice person because she upset one of my favorite humans in the world in the form of Sally. We had an interview with Madonna face to face, didn't like it. Sally ended up in tears and we called it early and we went. And part of the reason for that was we were on the train to London and we had been told you have 20 minutes with Madonna face to face. Then um, the powers that be said, we want a network drive time special about Madonna. So here are a bunch of questions that you have to ask her because we can get those questions as self-contained answers and we can put them between songs over an hour and that's going to go across the GWR network and Madonna Drive Time Special. The rest of the 20 minutes that you've got with her, you can ask your questions for core control. All right. We're on the train. We get the record company. Yeah, she's running late. You've got 13 minutes with her when you do get here. By the time we got there, they said you've got 10 minutes with her now because the day's just really dragging on. Um, and then... I think we had to call someone to cover core control because she was running like two hours late. So we couldn't even get back to do core control that night. And by the time we got her, it was five minutes. You've now got five minutes with Madonna. So Sally was trying to ask the questions that they wanted for this network drive. And I was trying to ask as many questions as I could from our interview and try and take it down the more youth kind of route and a little bit cheeky and a little bit. And she just got really rude with Sally because Sally asked her about, oh, are you planning to have any more kids? Can't remember how many. I think she had Rock Lordes and Rocco at the time. I, I don't think she had any more. I don't know. And Sally asked, have you, are you planning to have any more kids? And she went, have you got any kids? And Sally went, no, I don't. And she went, well, stop living your life through me. And where did that question come from? Why wow. would you ask me that? And got really, and that was it. And I just saw tears start rolling down Sally's face. No compassion or sympathy or regret. Or any sort of like, I'm sorry, was that, you know, just looked at, just stared at Sally while she cried. And I think I called it. I went, right, that's it. Let's go. Done. That's it. Although, to this day, deeper and deeper, it's a fucking big boy tune. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, look, we've waited long enough, Cam. Um, and, yeah. you know, the last half hour of this pod, um, you've made it no secret that obviously as a London lad, you yeah. wanted to be on Capital. And yeah. you did it. You, you, you realised your dream. So I, I want to know the process. Is it a phone call? Is it an email? How did it, how, and, and what were your emotions when you got, when someone got in touch and said, Cam Kelly, we want you on Capital? Uh, I don't even know if I can describe. I can remember where I was. And I tell you this much, it's weird, isn't it? Things happen for a reason. I was going through a really, really bad situation in my relationship. And it was, and it was, horrible and it was just a really horrible time in my life and I remember getting this London number just randomly called me on my phone and I went outside the studio to take it It was probably about four o'clock in the afternoon it was Keith Pringle who was in charge of Capital at the time and he said I, Cam would you be interested in talking to us at Capital and I said yeah I would that yes of course I would he said okay well look if you're interested in in having a chat with me he said, when are you free? And I said, well, look, I've got to do core control and we finish at 10, never usually leave the building till 10.30. He said, if I can find a place to meet you for a drink in Bristol, I'll get a hotel last day out. And I think it was the following Wednesday I went after the show. I didn't even tell Sally, I don't think. I don't think I told her. But it's, I remember thinking to myself, A, this is my dream come true. B, this is coming at one of the worst times of my life. Although I think we all know that moving locations geographically doesn't 
get rid of any problem, but it just seemed like the right thing at the time. And I went to meet him and we sat there and we drank copious amounts of red wine and he offered me there and then capital FM early breakfast for about 15 grand more per year than what I was on at core control. And it wasn't about the money. And with the, the classic capital carrot of you'll do early breakfast for six months and then we're going to give you daytime. Because I was like, my, my concern is that I'm coming from a show with 1.6 million listeners a week to a show with 50,000 listeners a week. He went, but it's capital. And, and that was the argument, wasn't it? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is. It is. And that is it. I get to say that every day. I remember thinking, this is incredible. That 12-year-old kid, that 13-year-old kid would not believe that there are two hours every weekday on 95.8 Capital FM that are reserved just for him. Just for him. I remember thinking that's just the most incredible feeling in the world. Can you can you remember your first link? I'm pretty sure I started it 95.8 Capital FM and was proud as punch. <laughs> Um, to have done so. And I think I finished it with 95.8 Capital FM. <laughs> Thought I'm not going to be able to say that enough. You may. <laughs> Loved it. Um, I think my first link at any new job is always a very, the analogy I always use, I think, is that I think if you go onto a new radio station and your first link is and you're loud, I always liken it to when you go to a, if you're out with a bunch of mates at a pub and someone brings someone new along. And they sit down and they get on with people and they just have a chat. You remember that person, you think, what a lovely guy. Oh, it'd be nice if he came out again. And then gradually that person opens up and becomes part of the group. Whereas the person who comes into a new social circle makes the whole thing about them, takes over every conversation, annoys me. And just and, I, and, it, and I've always sort of taken that to when you start a new job on the air, just go in softly, softly, tread lightly, and just a little bit more confidence every day. But to go in and just be on and just full, it's, I think it's off-putting. So I, I think the first link would have been relatively subdued. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously on, on, on core, you'd have been presented, as you mentioned, to 1.6, 1.7 million people every day. And yeah. you go into Capital and it's your, it has been your dream for pretty much all your life and you've made it, you've got it onto the radio station, which, let's be honest, we all wanted to do. Like, everybody wanted yeah. to be on Capital. And anybody who says they yeah. didn't, that I... They're lying. I, I just, I, I just wondered, like, the, the nerves. You must have been, even though you'd been presenting to 1.6, 1.7 million people, you must have been shitting yourself, Cam. Yeah, bricking it. Absolutely bricking it. I mean, uh, I mean no disrespect to those who came before me on that shift. Um, I think, you know, some great presenters did it. But I always remember it as Richard Allenson's shift. And they, to me, were the shoes that I had to fill. And just to be on the same frequency as the greats and to say the station tagline that Kenny Everett once said, and and it's the same studio that Chris Tarrant did. I missed him by about two years. I thought Johnny Vaughan was an incredible, an amazing presenter. But as the, the, the kid in me wanted, uh, was in love with Chris Tarrant. And so the fact that I got to use the same studio, the same mixing desk that he finished up his career at Capital in, was was a big buzz as well but yeah it was it was nerve-wracking and I, I did feel starstruck going into and that didn't stop for a while even with the confidence with the show i felt starstruck by the building and the frequency pretty much every day that i was there do you know it's it's, it's amazing to hear like i just i, I love the fact I mean, we spoke to a lot of people who have managed to achieve what they set out to do you know and that's exactly it, it's I, I know the answer is going to be because you have to pay the bills but you know, when things come to an end, a place that you've you've achieved your dream, you know, I'm guessing part of you's thinking, well, done it, mate. Might as well do something else now. Am I right in thinking that you you were doing only breakfast, but potentially mids came up, and then it it kind of all went south from there. Yeah, yeah. There was again. I'm not going to bring any names into it, and I actually think I get on well with. We've spoken a couple of times on text over the past few years, and everything's very very nice i got a lot of respect for the guy but um at the time there was someone who did 100 percent didn't want me to, wouldn't allow me to leave core control and promised me that the that all i'd ever do is early breakfast on capital if you leave you're leaving opportunities in a massive show that's only going to get bigger and a world of opportunities if you go there i promise you i look me in the eye i promise you you are only ever going to do early breakfast you'll never get off that shift um then GCAP happened. And so the two companies merged after I'd gone there. So all of a sudden I was working again for a bunch of people that I had left to go to Capital. 
And then one of those people was in charge of capital for a while and had negotiated with my agent that mid mornings would be the next step for me. And then during that period, the other person who had promised me I would never, ever get off capital early breakfast, um, he came in and my agent went in to negotiate a mid-morning contract and he went, no, we're not giving him a new contract at all. He's off. And I remember sitting down with him face to face. He went, see, I promised you, you'd never get off that show. Oh, my God. He won. He won. I mean, if you're going to do it, do it properly. You're sitting in the chair that Richard Park used to occupy, and I've got a feeling probably does occupy again. But that's a kind of that's a kind of move. That's a. It was. I remember being gutted, but thinking, "You got me." You, oh. you, and I can't fault anyone who sticks to their word. And he kept his promise. That is hundred percent kept his promise. Yeah, but Cam, that's horrible. I know, man. I, I know. I, you, you're obviously a very different character to me because I would have dealt with it in a very different that that is so upsetting well let's let's not dwell on that because otherwise I'll say something I'll regret um all right well, so- well, I, can't, <laughs> I, I won't go into too many details but some of the things that were offered to me um to stay at core control were quite incredible yeah uh, they were matching the offer financially but there were uh, other things oh, I, I can't I can't I can't but it, it got I was like oh my god I have the power to end someone's career, essentially. And I said, no. Well, as long as that wasn't the breakfast show on 210 FM, then we can still remain friends. (laughs) 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 All right, so this is when uh, a mutual friend of ours pops up into your life. So a man called Simon Monk, who is a previous guest, a programmer uh, on Crunch and Roll. So uh, did you you know Simon before whilst you were at Capital? Because he, he pops into your life, doesn't he? So he was at um, Wyvern when I was on core control. And I remember we had a day called Black Wednesday on core control where every system failed. We went on air at seven o'clock. We had no playout system, no ad system, nothing. Everything had crashed. And then you're trying to play CDs in the Denon CD player because you had a backup library. But that no one had upgraded the Denon CD players to deal with CD-ROMs. And every single that was in the charts you buy it and it would have the video on CD-ROM as well as the actual single. So the Denons wouldn't play. So we had three hours of winging it <laughs> and um, trying to do our best. And we did. And I, to this day, probably three of hours that I'm probably most proud of because we were up against it. And somehow we did it three hours. And the next day I came in and my inbox was just full from the local programmers across the country, just writing to me and Sally, just going back congratulating us for how we handled it and how we you know we ended up actually making and I think it was Simon who said it's some of the best radio he's ever heard in his life and I remember his email was meant a a real lot a real lot to me and he got in touch with me when I shortly after I'd moved to Capital I think he'd recently started at Hallam he said I don't imagine you're ready to leave Capital just yet because you've only just got there he said if you ever are will you make me your first phone call and I said okay and I respected him for that. Plus, what I liked about Hallam was um, Big John, who still does breakfast there now, has been doing it now for 23 years, uh, was doing breakfast there and he was my best mate. So it meant that I could go somewhere. I could see daylight again rather than getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go in for you know, a four o'clock start and, and then go home and sleep through the day. And it just meant I could get some normality back. And, and I just had the best time. And Simon, I liked, so I've said this before a few times, the way Simon managed was brilliant. He had the entire office and floor, the entire company, the entire station. I don't want to say singing off the same hymn sheet, but going in the same direction. And everyone loved the station and everyone was obsessed with the station. And Colin Patterson did the same sort of thing at Red Dragon FM. And both of them breeded absolute massive success. And the only way I can liken it is when you're working at a station like that and when you're working in an environment and an atmosphere created by either one of those two, it's like going out on a tightrope, but you've got a safety net beneath you as opposed to going out on a tightrope with nothing, just the great dark beyond down there. There's an extra layer of confidence and safety you feel because you know not only your programmers backing you, but everyone on that station. It's not a case of, I've been at stations before when you get into one of the company cars and they've got Radio 1 on or something. Everyone at that station lived and breathed that station, whether they worked there or not, they lived and breathed the brand and they loved it. And that was down to Simon. 
And um, yeah, he was the first call I made uh, when the capital thing happened. And I just absolutely had the best, best time in Sheffield. It was incredible. I didn't realise you were good friends, best friends with Big John as well. Yeah, yeah. We've known each other since Kicks 96. Of course. I went to Kicks. Yeah. yeah, and that's where I met, that's where I met John. And then um, I went down to Galaxy. And because John, to this day, is one of the funniest human beings I know, as part of the breakfast show, I'd get him on doing parts for me, doing bits and like characters and stuff. And Simon Dennis one day went, who is that guy? And I went, his name's John Harrison. He's on Mercia at the moment up there. He goes, do you think you'd be interested in a gig down here? And when I told John that, I got in touch with John. He wet himself and he couldn't have got down to Bristol quick enough. And he came down to Galaxy and did evenings, then moved on to mid mornings before Hallam came calling for him. Wow, did not know that. That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Now, it's, it's nice because the next move, you, you go to Red Dragon in Wales and... This is quite rare because you're then reunited with Sally after a few years apart. And that doesn't, you know, I've worked with two blokes in my life who I absolutely adore and I've enjoyed every second of doing breakfast shows with them. But I can't imagine I'll ever work with them again. And, and that must have been a magical feeling when you, you, were, you were able to be reunited. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Sally is, and to this day she remains, she's like the older sister I never had. And my two younger sisters consider her our older sister as well. Sure, she'll love the fact that I keep using the word older. Um, but essentially, <laughs> she's one of my closest friends and she is family, essentially. So that meant that during the times that we weren't working together, whether it was in London or whether it was in Sheffield, we kept in touch. We'd speak once or twice a week. Um, and then, of course, she just took time out. She wanted to take time out from radio and she was having a kid anyway. And we were in touch. And I spoke when I spoke to Red Dragon, I spoke to Colin and I said, I'll, if you can convince Sally to do it, then I'll come, I'll come down and do it. If you can convince Sally. And then I told Sally, um, cause I don't know what the original plan was. Um, and I think they hadn't thought because I think Tony Wright, who was there as well, who's still one of my best mates. Now he was deputy program controller. He was the one who made the call to me. And he said, I don't think Sally would be up for getting back into radio. And I said, well, well, let me, let's sound her out let's not rule it out because I just thought I'm not going to the other side of the country uprooting everything if they're going to just put me with a and other mm. and go well hopefully this works and luckily Sally was well up for it yeah it was like we'd never stopped working was together it? It was, was it great. really I was going to ask yeah. what was it like yeah, first, yeah. just straight back into it it was just so it was so comfortable yeah perfect absolutely loved it I mean unfortunately for you um Capital follows you around because then, of course, they rebrand yeah. Red Dragon to Capital South Wales. When you heard that, I mean, obviously you weren't told by a management. You'd have read that, that in Radio Today like we all do. You know, we all find out about our careers on, yeah. on Radio Today. Um, uh, did your heart sink at that point? Um, a little bit. I think they'd alluded to it. Everyone at Global was called to London like a few months prior to the big rebrand. And to be fair to them, Stephen Meyer and Richard Park, Ashley Tabor on stage and and they were interviewed by James O'Brien, actually, who to this day is, you know, I think he's my absolute hero now, if we're looking at current day broadcasters. But um, I think he he held them to, because they, they announced that they would be making changes and they would be trying to roll out one brand. And they gave us all fair warning. They didn't give us an exact timeline, but it seemed fair. And when they did do it, yeah, I was devastated for Red Dragon as a brand. I just thought it's an incredible brand. Uh, I also thought it's really, it's it just resonates with South Walians, with the Welsh. It's just a great brand and it's been there and it's there's no doubt from where it's from, where the content is taken from and delivered to. And I thought, yeah, I, I was devastated for the loss of Red Dragon. But I totally appreciate that evolution has to exist otherwise we'd never go anywhere and um and everyone had always said if they ever rebrand red dragon i mean capital because it's the only other station based in the capital city they've got to the rebranding didn't work initially i think i think they get decent listeners now i think it, i think it holds its own but certainly we'd just come off the back of a rage which had seen the highest figures in red dragon's history and that was the rage before rebranding to capital so it was nice i guess to go out on a high yeah, Red Dragon was the strongest it had ever been before it became capital. So from there, Red Dragon, um, <coughs> capital South Wales, you move back up north. Cam, if I were, the, the if I were your yeah, agent, no. if I were your agent, I would have said no. 
Um, okay. <laughs> but you, yeah. went, you went to Radio Air, which um, I did a week of cover at Radio Air once. And yeah. it's an amazing station, but just, it just doesn't do very well. And, and d- no. d- did you feel that as soon as you got there? Yeah, look, I mean, and this is another this testament to Simon, really. When I was at Hallam, Radio Air asked me from within the group, and Simon said, they're going to come to you this afternoon, and this is what they're going to ask you. And they asked me whether I'd be interested in going to Radio Air to do breakfast, pay rise five days a week as opposed to six days a week, but it would be Radio Air breakfast. And I sat down with Simon, who was my boss at Hallam, and I said, what do you think? He said, mate, it's up to you. Personally, he said... I- I wouldn't. He said, I don't want to lose you. So it's easy for me to say that. But he said, I think you're onto a good thing here at Hallam. And I don't think that would be a particularly good move for you. And so I said, yeah, okay, fair enough. So I turned it down straight away. The difference was that um, I was with a partner and we had a house in Sheffield. um, So we were always moving back up north anyway. And I needed work and an opportunity presented itself. And so I went and it turned out the people at Radio Air were absolutely lovely. There was, again, wouldn't dream of naming names. There was one person who just made the entire experience an absolute... And I love everywhere that I work, and I try and buy into every brand that I work for, live it and breathe it, but there was one person who made it... I can't say a living hell, and I think nightmare is a bit... When you look at the kind of nightmares that people do go through, it, look, it just was a low, a real low point. And um, and it was around the same time that things were going really south with my partner at the time. And there was a lot going on and there was just no compassion. What's, it was just horrible. It was not not good. It was a relief when I, I came off air one day and uh, and I was called into a meeting and I knew what I knew exactly what was going to happen. It was a Friday. I knew exactly what was going to happen. And I was just told there and then that was your last show. Get your stuff, get gone. Um, I, I was on a two-year contract, and I'd done ten months of it. And they said, uh, and uh, he said, he said, I'm only going to give you uh, two months or something. I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't even anyway. Anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to get into that territory because, because I, I, I think I said to you on another occasion. Anyway, like when Bauer took over Sam FM, they were so ridiculously generous, and and actually. They were a great group, and the people that I still know within Bauer, I think there are some great programmers there. I think there's some great visionaries there. Um, I think there are some great leaders there, and they were really, really kind to me when I left Sam. They were very, very generous in their redundancy. Um, so I, I'm not tiring that one person with the Bauer brush, but it was just a bad time. Once you're told that you're you're, you're not going to be part of Radio Air, I mean, what did what do you do? You walk out the door. I mean, what were your plans? Uh, at that point, again, they was going to give me, I think, two or three months worth of contract. Um, so I just thought, well, that this will be a nice time to stop and breathe through anything. Uh, again, I don't want to use the word traumatic because it belittles what other people go through. But through certain points in my life, I'd never taken time off air because I think I had this mentality that radio is my first love and nothing, nothing outside of it is going to affect it. No one's going to be powerful enough to affect the thing that I've worked my entire life for so I'd worked through everything and I'd worked through the most recent relationship breakdown as well and um and I was living with um one of my best mates and actually outside of work was having the time of my life and I thought well now would be a great time just to have a few months to carry on having the time of my life and we went on holidays and we were ridiculous and we were unreasonable and we were spending more than we had and when we ran out we would borrow and we'd spend that and then when we run out of that we'd borrow some more and we'd spend that with the promise that we'd both make sure that we were looked after financially in the future should we need to be and and we both um sort of adhered to that in times when the other ones needed it um and to this day remains just yeah one of my one of my closest friends and still got a room in his house, which is mine. So that's there whenever I go back up. And yeah. And the sad thing is he doesn't even change the bedding. So the last time I was in there, I hadn't (laughs) slept in those covers for six months. It wasn't nice. (laughs) Wasn't nice, but literally had the, had the best time. And then, and then James Brownlow got in touch and said, would you like to come and do some stuff at Orion? And Love David Lloyd, loved the brands. There was Gem and free radio, as you well know. Yeah. And I was doing a lot of cover on, both gem and free radio in 
in Birmingham. And, and the nice thing is that it, it, when you don't, when it's not your show, you don't obsess over it. You don't mm. lie awake at night, and you don't have to worry about Ray Day. And so when you're just covering other people's show, I could still live my irresponsible lifestyle back at my mate's place, still go on holidays around the cover that I had to do and and just, you know, get a little bit of cash in and just have, it was brilliant. I had the best time. I had the absolute best time. Oh, yeah. Sam FM comes into your life, um, yeah. having done a bit of free, bit of gem. And um, am I right in remembering, there's something to do with you and a camel. Yeah. What what was that? Was that? That's all, that was, no, 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 just yes. That's what it was. That's what it was just a yes. No, no, no need. No need to go into details. If if I had a solicitor sit next to me right now, he'd be advising me not to answer the question. I gave you a yes. That was the question you asked. If we were in America, I plead the fifth. I mean, it's there on it's there on YouTube. My partner, she found it hilarious. And she now has that as her ringtone because the music to it goes cam 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 cam. So yeah, so and another one of my mates has got that as my ringtone on his phone as well. So that's delightful. If, if I were to ask you for any regrets, would that be the one? No, look, it's fine. <laughs> I, I got to go back to Bristol, which I was desperate to do, and I and I I love that city, and the, I loved Sam as a brand. And someone suggested that to me as an idea. And you know, when someone's really excited and they go, "How about Cam on a camel for Sam FM?" and I just inside died a little bit, but went. Um, yeah, I'm the new boy. I'm really enthusiastic about this, and uh, and there is when you, when you know when you're filming it, when you're on the back of a camel, you are constantly thinking, well, this is this is going to be online forever. It's just there now. <laughs> I'll, I'll never be able to deny it. It's there. What can I do? I, do you know what? I'm not. I didn't even recall that story just to mock you. I, it's just the one thing that when I think of you, I think of that camel. That's how powerful yeah. that is. So you, you know, your, your pal and your other half are right to have that as a ringtone. <laughs> yeah, well, don't know about powerful, humiliating, humiliating things tend to stick in people's mind, don't they? <laughs> I, just, I just love the fact. I just, I, I just imagine you sat on that camel. And just closing your eyes and just thinking about the time you were doing early breakfast on Capital in London. 95.8 Capital <laughs> FM. Sat opposite George Michael for 45 minutes having a chat. And now look at me on the back of a stanking old camel. Doing what? <laughs> but you, did you enjoy your time at Sam? Yeah, look, I loved it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, of course I did. Of course, like I say, there was one blip and... I enjoyed the shows that I did at Radio Air. Um, and when Mike Cass was there, he, Mike Cass was a little barrier. He protected me at Radio Air and we got some really good results. And we, I think we got some really good radio. He was the one who carried on saying to me, you only talk to me and you do the radio that you're doing. And we, and we made it work. But I, I've enjoyed every job that I've done. And I, I think if you do a, a job in radio and you're not enjoying it, you probably shouldn't be probably shouldn't be doing it so yeah look sam i got to i got to live and breathe the city that i love every single day um i would have rather been playing contemporary because i i refused to grow up but by the same token there were some bangers there was you know there were sort of like 80s 90s and stuff and it was really fun and the audience were great and yeah loved it yeah uh, and, and now we, we we arrived to to today where you are in the falklands um mm-hmm. doing shows for bfbs um, yeah, and I, I'm going to say it again, as I did at the top of of the podcast, you, you look happy, you look tanned, you look well, and are you are you, in, are you enjoying your time, the, the experience? Yeah, I am, and I'd, like I say, I'd spoken to Simon Monk. I mean, this podcast brought to you by Simon Monk, or evidently. I mean, his name's <laughs> dropped in there a million times, and other Simons are resp- are available. Yeah, I'd spoken to him because he's he's been with BFBS for a while now, and um, and I'd spoken to him a couple of times. And he said, "Look, if you did want to do it, you'd do radio that you love. It wouldn't mean you're moving abroad." And I just didn't, I didn't man up. I didn't, I just shied away from it. And then I think the last time I spoke to him, he went seriously, mate. You will do the radio that you love, the the kind of radio that you used to thrive on. You'll do it. It'll mean something to someone, but it just means you have to actually pull your finger out of your and you know man up and get gone and he was absolutely right and i've probably he texts me about once a week just to go how's it going and i'll the text messages will always end with me saying to him thank you for making me do it thank you for pushing me to do it because if you hadn't 
when I went back at Christmas between my detachments, I went back from Brunei, went back uh, in the new year, January, spent a few days back before they sent me out here. And even my mum, who said, you know, my mum and my dad, they both said to me separately, they went, this is possibly the best thing you've ever done. And they said, I can't remember seeing you this happy or excited about work. My thought process was if I don't do it and I've been offered this opportunity to travel the world, getting paid to travel the world, living rent free in a cost of living crisis at home, all subsidized living, all perks, everything, working with an incredible bunch of people for an incredible bunch of people. I thought if that when that time comes that you draw your last breath, are you going to look back and go, you bellend, you could have done that. You could have gone, but you, you chickened out. You could be lying here now thinking, well, I'm glad I did that. But And that was really what made me go, yeah, I'll definitely do it. Because I thought, I know for a fact, I couldn't lie there in good conscience going, well, you, you gave this life a good shot, mate. Well done. I, I know there'd be that in the hanging, hanging at the back of my mind going, you're a bellend. Someone wanted to pay you to travel the world and do what you love doing, by the way. Do you know, you said no. I, I, I'm pleased that it, you, you mentioned your mum there because um, something which I skipped over and having done a little bit of reading on you. Where are you going with this? Tread very carefully. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a bit. Let's go back to South Wales in 1997, 2002, that period there, because you, you get a TV show on the local ITV show. And, um, you know, in yeah. life, we, we go through life and you need support from from friends and colleagues, but especially your parents. And you, you, you get your TV debut. But what did your yeah. mum say to you? I remember speaking to her on telephone and um, I'd sent her a copy of one of the shows. It was a 16-week TV show, very low budget, but it was on the local ITV station for, for Bristol in the West Country, HTV, 11 o'clock on a Thursday night, prime time. I'd sent her uh, a copy of it and she'd watched it and she rang me. And I said, well, what did you think? And she went, I think you need to stick to radio. And that, that was, uh, yeah. She said, and she said, I don't mean that. She said, but you know I'm your biggest fan. And she said, the one thing I'm never going to do to you is lie. And she said, you know, I think you're great on the radio. TV's not really your thing, though, is it? Um, so it was like, well, no, I guess it's not. Well, it's not now, anyway. But I finished the 16 weeks, did the 16, saw it out. Awful. Absolutely awful. Oh, terrible. Well, listen, Cam, um, thank you so much for doing Crunch and Roll. You, you, were, you were a name um, firmly at the top of my hit list to get on. And um, uh, thank you. I, I can't thank you enough well, for, for sharing. I don't know. I often ask this to, to some of the guests. I mean, have you ever gone through your career like this? Uh, I did a couple of things recently. There's a guy, James lovely guy on there and he does a thing called your take on youtube did that uh before i left bristol so maybe a year ago and i that i found a little bit like this actually you find yourself uh, just coming happening upon parts of your life that you'd completely forgotten about it's a little bit a little bit like a therapy session i think on the last one i actually started welling up when i was talking about sally so i made sure that i i didn't get too flowery about her today um <laughs> But yeah, now I found it, and I just, actually, I was really grateful, honoured, um, in fact, that you that you asked. So thank you very much. Well, as always, we get our guests to to read the end credits, and we've got the voice of Radio One from 1995 to read Crunch and Roll's end credits. Okay, right. So from what I can remember from delivering Radio One summer of '95 reads, they were spo- they were supposed to be very emotionless. You've been listening to Crunch and Roll with me, Cam Kelly. Listen to all previous episodes on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to get every new episode as soon as it drops. Crunch and Roll is a 969 Media production presented by John Fox and produced by Simon Borzowski. 